All right, this morning we want to come to the next church in our series that we're looking at in Revelation 2 and 3. It's the first church in Revelation chapter 3. It's the church Sardis. The letter that was written by the Apostle John from what looks like dictation from the Lord. The seven real churches. This is a real letter, a real message, the real church, which contains real believers, people like you and I, a church that struggled with real problems and was being confronted with the possibility of real judgment. You don't think about churches coming under judgment, but churches are made up of people and churches come and go. And um, as it was in the church at Ephesus, sometimes the Lord will come and remove the light, the effect, the influence of the church. That's a sobering reality. We're seeing, we're talking about that with Vacation Bible School. Uh, that's been a, an ongoing outreach ministry of the church. And we are seriously thinking about, or at least there's talk about, changing it or doing something less uh, involved in ministry or less aggressive in that. And so that's an important area of prayer. Anytime you re retreat from ministry or work, if it's God's work and if God is blessing it, you would want to be very serious about that and consider that very seriously. Um, I guess we all have our opinions about how we can minister and what we can do and the best way to do it. And, uh, but it is a matter, I think, of prayer. God is not bound culturally to a particular type of outreach, but He does tell us to be faithful. He's the one that has all authority and He has commissioned us all of us, and we know it's all of us, not just a band of disciples on that mountain, but all of us to be faithful uh, and to make disciples, and he promises to be with us to the very last tick of the clock his, his kingdom. He promises to be with us. And so we have that promise. Uh, we rest in that, and we look forward to, to uh, his leadership in the church here and we see where he leads and what he's doing. He does not make mistakes and uh, he knows more about what he's doing than we do. So we can comfort that, take comfort in that. He's able to save and able to work. So I think if our hearts are willing to be used to him, I think we can expect exciting things because he is open and he wants us to be faithful. So take your Bibles and turn Revelation chapter 3, the letter to the church at Sardis. We've seen the uh, church at Ephesus was the church that lost its first love. That's the church that I identify with because I can see my heart craving and looking after and running after other things um, instead of him or on a, even on a level that would be equal to that. He, he doesn't tolerate the, a love affair for him that's equal to something else. He's first. And he's very clear about that. Luke 14 is, is, tells us to count the cost and gives us a picture of the cost of discipleship. And it is real. And that's one reason why people uh, do not respond to the gospel that's really preached because it costs too much. It's asking us to put Jesus first. And 
that's a hard call. Not because Jesus is not better, he's much better, but because we don't think he's better. We think other things are better. We, we get we get confused along that line. So we saw the letter to the church, message to the church in Ephesus, the loss of first love. The uh, church in Smyrna was a church that was undergoing suffering and persecution. And they were small and struggling. Uh, they were, we call it the poor rich church. I think it was John's terminology was a good one. Uh, that they, while they were poor and while they were small and while they were struggling under persecution, uh, that because they were faithful in the midst of that, they had a, a real deep love and they were actually very wealthy and very, in, in so far as spiritual riches are concerned, the rich church. The church at Pergamon uh, was a church that was struggling with the world and compromising with the world. Uh, and then the church that we looked at, Tyra um, Tyra was the church that tolerated sin and its members. And all of these are warnings. We'll kind of summarize these when we get to the end. But today we look at the church of Sardis. Probably the key verse to that is the end of verse one, where the Lord identifies. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And that's a hard thing. That's a hard message for any church, but to come from the lips of the one uh, who has the seven spirits of God and uh, the seven stars make that declaration to the church is a very serious, serious accusation. So let's look at that. Uh, and before we actually do that, let's ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Father, we do thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for this church. And thank you for working in the hearts of the people. And uh, I pray that you'll help us to be really in touch with you. Uh, if there is a need of dedication or commitment in my life or in our lives, I pray you'll bring that out. You're the shepherd. You've promised to work. You're doing that. And uh, you've made the statement in John 10 that we are in your hand. We are secure in that. And then the we and then your hand are in your father's hand. We cannot be snatched away or detoured if we are really yours. There's a very real possibility that we can be thinking that we are in your hand and thinking that we are uh, very pleasing to you when in fact we've not really made the commitment to you but rather we've made a commitment to religion we feel good about what we've done what we've given and we are comfortable and the, the things that make up our christian life our religious life our public walk and we feel good about those things because we're able to do those things and in one sense we're able to fool people even though we may not think about it as fooling people, but more, more correctly, fooling ourselves. I pray that you'll help us not to do that. I ask you to work in my heart and to work in our hearts, in our lives. Help us to be, we are vulnerable. Help us to know and realize the vulnerabilities and the areas that really need your input and, and correction and to be sensitive to you. We want to be pleasing to you. We want to serve you. We want to stand before you. We know that we stand before you exposed. We want to know those exposures and uh, correct those things so that you don't have to discipline us about these things in our lives, which are, which we have. And so we just, we are here this morning asking you to instruct us from your word. I thank you for your mercy and your grace. And that's your blessing upon this time. We pray it in Jesus' name and thanksgiving. Amen. To the angel, this is beginning of verse 1, chapter 3. To the angel 
of the church of Sardis. Sardis, um, a little town that's, that's in, in the, uh, you have it here, it's kind of the coastal route, starting, starting out with Ephesus coming into the coast, Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamum, and then coming over, we looked at the Tower Tower, and then today we're looking at Sardis. Sardis, the unique thing about Sardis was its location. Uh, it was located on kind of a, a, a this was that judged out, judged out in the valley. Uh, it was a position that was perfect for defense. It was almost a steep, almost a perfectly a perpendicular wall on three sides. It could only be really accessed by a kind of a, la a natural land bridge that came out from the mountain onto the area of the plateau where the city was located. And so it was it was extreme, extremely easy to to defend. Uh, it was founded back in about 12 BC and was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world and uh, had a lot of money. There was a lot of wealth in that city. Um, much of the wealth came or resulted from gold that came from the nearby Pactolus River. Uh, archaeologists have found even there a lot of ruins of hundreds of crucibles and things used for refining gold and silver and stuff. And so there was a lot of a lot of things um, that are there. The, the, use, the significant thing, and I'm skipping over a lot of stuff, but the significant thing that kind of sticks in my mind is that while the city, in fact, I'm going to quote from Dr. Thomas. He wrote about that, and I think I'll just read the quote. He says, and it's a pretty lengthy quote. He says, in the middle of the 6th century BC, the city, was, uh, the city attained such a high level of respect that when its downfall came at the hands of a then little-known enemy, Cyrus of Persia, the Greek cities received the news of it with disbelief. They didn't believe it had actually been conquered. Despite an alleged warning against self-satisfaction by the Greek god whom he consulted, Croesus, the king of Lydia, uh, infiltrated, initiated an attack against Cyrus, king of Persia, but was soundly defeated. Returning to Sardis to recoup and rebuild his army for another attack, he was pursued quickly by Cyrus, who laid siege against Sardis. Croesus uh, felt utterly secure in his impregnable situation atop the Acropolis, and he foresaw an easy victory over the Persians who were cornered, who were cornered among the perpendicular rocks in the lower city, making them an easy prey for assembling Lydia, uh, the Lydian army to crush. After re retiring one evening while the drama was unfolding, uh, they, they awakened to discover that the Persians had gained control of the Acropolis by scaling one by one the steep walls. Um, so secure did the people of Sardis feel that they left this isolated means of access completely unguarded, permitting climbers to ascend and uh, uh, ascend unobserved. Uh, it was said that even a child could have defended the city from an attack, but not so much as one observer had been appointed to watch the, the side that was believed to be inaccessible. And so, you know, they, that's kind of apropos for the city, with the city that, that he's going to be talking about here dead. Uh, you need to wake up to be aware and be alert of what's going on. And that's not only true uh, with the physical city there, but it's true with the church, it's true with us too, because we are living in times that we are being attacked. There's all kinds of temptations around us. I experience them, you experience them, all kinds of things that would detour our affection. That's why I talk about that so much, because I can see that those attractions pulling my heart away. And I'm sure that all of us can experience those things. We don't want that. 
will we be faithful to the very end? And so here is this, this city in a place that was defeated twice, actually, the same way. I didn't, not going into the details with that, but it was twice they were defeated the same, same way. He goes on to talk about the, the attributes of the one, the speaker I mentioned a moment ago, he who has the seven spirit of God and the seven stars. Now, this is kind of part of the language. We're used to that in Revelation, these, this description. But the description is an important description. Um, the word has, a very common word in the, in the Greek, uh, just means to have a whole fast. Here is the one who has a whole fast, the seven spirits of God. And actually, uh, we know that the number seven is a number that represents completion. It's used in the scriptures, particularly Revelation, over and over and over again. We have seven lampstands. And uh, the lampstands represent seven real churches. Uh, the seven churches represent whole span of the church, as well as the temptations that are existing. That represent the temptations that the people, that the believers, experience. There are the seven churches, the seven stars that represent the seven messengers, which are sent from the seven churches as well. The seven spirits of God seems to be a reference here to the spirit of God, the completed picture of, of the Holy Spirit, the seven uh, spirits. Uh, Christ is pictured as a lamb with seven horns, which is a perfect defense of uh, the seven seals, uh, sealing up the title deed of the earth. There are seven angels with seven trumpet judgments. There's a seven-headed dragon and seven diadems, seven angels with seven last plagues which finish the wrath of God, and then the seven goals, which is full of God's wrath. Well, I'm not trying to bore you with that. I'm just pointing out that the number seven is a very significant number in Scripture, particularly in Revelation, the Parkerfully speaking, and uh, that, that seems to be a picture that is used in the Scriptures of completion. Now, why it's done that way, I'm not prepared to tell you. I know that uh, the Lord dwells in the spiritual realm outside the physical realm. We have the physical realm here, but we have the spiritual realm that we can't see, but we know it's real. And we know it's just as real. And we know that the one who occupies the spiritual realm, the only one, has uh, the power of being in himself, and he is eternal. And he knows everything. He's not gaining new information at any time. Everything that's possible to know, he knows, and he's in absolute control. <clears throat> with uh, scroll says there's not one road molecule in the universe, everything is under his absolute control. And he is able, as the scripture talks about, to choose those he wants to say, put their names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And he's able to do it, as the scripture says, not just an age, but ages before the world of time. So this is massive. This is it's 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 incomprehensible how we can grasp the greatness of this God. We will be spent, we will need eternity, really, to get to know him, to understand what he's like. And uh, nothing that we can possibly think about or possibly want to do can equal the greatness and the privilege and the honor and the fulfillment of getting to know him and honoring him. So everything that we have down here that we are attracted to is not worthy of his attention. And he is so much better than that. And so we, we, uh, we look at him and we see this language of seven spirits and seven stars 
describing from the spiritual realm for us in the physical realm what is going on and how we can relate that. And so the seven being complete, spirit being the spirit of God, just I think my personal thought is gives us a picture of the completeness of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, we we know for sure that the Bible teaches that the, the, that the God of the Bible is a Trinitarian God. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All of them are deity, all of them are God. Uh, they think of these different, this, they, they function together in this realm. It's kind of hard to be able to describe it in a way that's that explains it to a non-believer, but we know that the Holy Spirit is really God and he's really there and he really works. He has chosen not to be in the limelight, but to be in kind of the, the background and to direct our attention, not to himself, but to the Son. And that's where we focus our worship. And that's where we have the privilege of looking to. And he is the one that is seated in glory uh, as our advocate. And the, the work, the plans, the way they fit together, while we may not completely understand it, we know that because it comes from God, it's perfect and it's right and it does the job. And we want to cooperate with that as much as we can. Makes sense. So uh, here is one who has to hold fast, if you will, the seven spirits of God, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, John tells us in this book, Revelation, about that. John, the, the beginning says, John, he, he describes the Trinity uh, in Revelation 1 4. Uh, the writer is John, he's writing to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. And then he describes who they're from. First of all, God the Father, that is him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's, that's the designation of God the Father in this spiritual realm at this time. And then also God the Holy Spirit from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's describing the Holy Spirit. And then God the Son, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So we have here a picture in the beginning, and the Holy Spirit described there as the seven spirits, which I think is helpful for us to kind of put these together in the kind of identifying the person. Now there's also a, a name there, seven stars. He's not only he has the seven stars, and that reference um, seven stars is explained as well. All of these personal identifications given by the Lord come. From the vision of him in Revelation 1, verses 12 through 17, verse 16 reads, uh, in his right hand, talking about this majestic picture of Christ, in his right hand, that is the hand of, normally in scripture is the hand of power or authority, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Um, the fact that they're in his hand uh, is giving reference, I believe, to the fact that they are totally under his control and totally secure in his grasp. The hand is used, remember John chapter 10, when John said that, that my sheep hear my voice and I know that I give them until I can never perish and neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. Talking about that. Hand is that place that part of the anatomy that holds something secure. Here are these seven stars that are in his hand, which means they are secure. And they're identified in verse 20 when he says the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. So we believe that, that that's a picture there 
of these leaders, leaders, perhaps pastors or leaders that are messengers to the seven churches. And so here is the one who is speaking, and this is the identification of him as the master, the head of the church, and the Lord, if you will, uh, seven spirits and the seven stars. And uh, he is talking to a church that is now considered to be dying. But at least there are members of it that are dying. So it's a very serious, it's a serious, I think it's a serious confrontation for me. And I think it would be a serious confrontation for you to know who he is and hear him speaking to us and hear him challenging us. We want to listen. We want to respond. We don't want to lay down or to turn away and be distracted. Um, there are distractions around us. And so the active Holy Spirit uh, is involved in confronting the church. And in confronting the church, he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Uh, the message of the church comes, if you will, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and tells them to wake up this church and to provide life and to see that they respond, to see that they repent. Christ does care for the church. He cares for this church as well. And he's telling them to wake up. Here, he described it. He says, uh, I know your deeds. That's always a challenge because we, we know that he knows a lot more than we do. I have I know that there are times when I, and I don't mean, I don't want you to misunderstand, I'm not sitting up there saying I'm trying to trick the Lord, but I know there are times in which I want to try to manipulate him for my advantage or to use him because he's all powerful to my advantage. And I do that and then I realize what I've done, realize how stupid it is because you see, we, we, don't, we can't fool him. We can fool ourselves very easily, but we can't fool him. And he knows what's best. He always knows what's best. And he's going to do what's best. And that's what I want. I know that. And so you don't want to come up here and try to, to, to trick him or to use him like a, a genie or something. You rub the genie and you kind of get your way about something. And so here is the one who knows this. He says, I know your deeds that you have a name, uh, that you are alive, but in reality, you are dead. Um, this, is a, this is a serious accusation in a way. Uh, the name or the reputation, and we've been parts of churches that have had reputations in the past, and I, I don't name them, but I, we were actually on church at one time that had some of the great Bible teachers of the past generation speaking there on a number of occasions. Harry Ironside was one that spoke there a bit, and a few others. And, uh, but you, 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 know, the, you, you can't just, you can't rest in your history and let that go. You need to be active. I say you, we need to be active in serving the Lord and putting in first. Does that make sense? We need to do that now and we need to keep doing that. So he said, I know your deeds. You have a name or your reputation that you were alive, but you were dead. That is a way of saying that you do not realize your condition. You think you're okay, but you're not. That's, that's true. A lot of, a lot of, that's true with us in a lot of areas. It's true with a lot of people, true with a lot of churches. We don't, we don't realize, you listen, we, we listened the other day to John, he was talking about things and how the world is trying to get the church to back off. 
we shared the gospel. And sometimes we can use terminology that makes it sound like it's the wise thing to do. It's not the wise thing to do. Uh, it's the wise thing to do is to obey the Lord. And we are the one who, the only one, really, who have been entrusted with the message of salvation. And uh, so that we want to be faithful to that because we are, the Lord doesn't have a plan B. We are a plan A. We want to be faithful to that. So he says, um, I know you have a name that you're alive, but in fact, you are really dead. He goes down in verse 2 for, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Um, outwardly, the church seemed to prosper. Uh, they were especially proud of their heritage. They had um, a good name, uh, but the one who has all knowledge, the one whose eye sees, he says, I know your deeds. Nothing escapes his vision. Nothing is missed by him. And while things may have, people may have felt good about themselves, it is populated with people who are, are deceived about their own condition, about their own life, and about their own work. And beloved, that can be true here, and it can be true in every other church. We can be people can be deceived. And I, I've been trying to ask myself, well, why why would we be deceived? Because we have the scriptures and we speak, spend time in it. But I think one of the reasons is because there are other things that we want to get our attention directed from the Savior and from other things and start running after because we like. We, we like the, the money, we like the, the wealth, we like the prestige, we like the friendship we have and stuff like that. And it's easy to, to get our love affair with the Lord diverted and moved. And so that's, that's always, I, my thinking, it's been always a real danger. And it's one that, that I need to look at. And I just wonder if we all need to consider because we can be into it. I'm very happy, by the way, about the fact that we want to be used to the Lord. I think that's a good sign. A very good sign, and I'm very happy. I think that people are wanting to be sincere about it, and I just pray that God will work and will work in my heart and work in your heart to make us submissive and, and surrender. Teach us to surrender, teach us what it means to put him first. That we would have Psalm 37, one I've been going around and around with you, I've been sharing it with you, where it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desire of your heart. The delight in the Lord is, is something that we don't naturally do. In fact, we, we, before we were saved, we couldn't do that. We have no spiritual capacity to do it. But after we come to the Lord, if the Lord, if the Lord speaks to your heart like that, and you begin to pursue that. We were talking this morning about reading your Bible and loving the Lord, and what which should stimulate the other. Should we be stimulated to read the Bible because we love the Lord? Or should we read our, or should we love the Lord because we're reading our Bible? Well, they'll probably feed each other. They'll probably both contribute to that. And uh, the delight in the Lord is to put time in that and focus on that and give effort to that. And uh, it may sound like you're cranking out religion, but the, you ask the Lord. You tell the Lord, I don't want to be a phony. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to know you. And so I ask you to show me yourself and help me to, to understand. That's what I tell people when I tell them to read the Bible. I do that. Read your Bible. But don't just read it because it's a piece of... Uh, my mother used to... Uh, um, when she was a little girl in school, whatever the sickness was that they had, she was always, if she stayed home from school, automatically was a big, big spoon of castor. You think that it kind of works as a laxative, I guess, it kind of cleans you out a little bit. But she said, I found out real quick, I didn't want to stay home if I didn't have to, because I didn't like the castor. That's a good way of kind of making sure you're doing better. You got I feel bad. Okay, well, let's get a big spoon of castor. Well, I feel better already. <laughs> well, things like that can happen, but we want to be in, in this picture here. 
we want to be faithful and realize that God's uh, nothing can escapes the Lord's attention and nothing can be um, detoured from him and he doesn't miss anything and he's able to see those things and so uh, we want to be we want to be aware he says I know your deeds you have a name that you're alive but you are dead and uh, this it's like the church that was filled you've seen these mannequins that you find in the store windows and things like that they put the, the church is filled with like mannequins that look good on the outside but they're spiritually dead uh, they're void of the life-giving holy spirit of god um they, the flesh they're in the flesh uh, and the spirit the flesh and the spirit are in fact this is something that i've been uh, kind of wrestling with over and over uh, this morning and doing my studies and that is the contrast between the flesh and the spirit which are, are working together galatians says tells us uh, paul says to walk by the spirit what does that mean to walk by the spirit well we know this actually the word walk i looked the word up it's just it has to do with walking uh it's not a fancy word but we walk one step at a time don't we just one step and I think that's what he's saying. Just keep in step with the spirit. And if you do that, you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, the way that's worded tells us that the desires of the flesh have not been eradicated. They're still there. But if you're walking by the spirit, then it means that you won't be fulfilling or carrying out those desires. If I walk by the spirit and he's in charge of my life, in charge of my direction, then I won't be carrying out those desires. And those desires don't have to be just what I say. They don't have to be what I look at, where I go, what goes in my mind for entertainment. You know, see what I'm saying? I can be careful about those things. And I should be careful about them. And you too, should too. They're important. And so, uh, see, this is walk by, this is Galatians 5, 16, by the way. Walk by the Spirit, and you, know, you will not carry out the desires or the passions of the flesh. Next verse. Well, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. Isn't that interesting? And, and that's true. Uh, you know, if you're going to sit down and you have a chance to either look at a James Bond movie or watch some, uh, listen to some preacher or something, you're probably going to take the James Bond movie if you're just, because it's just more exciting. You see what I'm saying? But it really isn't. It really, it really is true to give a, a, a Give the benefit of the doubt. That's what Bob Jones used to say. Give the benefit of the doubt to the Lord and not the devil. And I think he's right. That's a good point. And so uh, the, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these two are opposite to one another uh, so that you won't you recognize that so that you don't just simply do the desires of the flesh and do what you please, but really set your life and your effort uh, and your attention to what doing what is right and what is what, what is necessary. Galatians 6, 7, 8 says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you reap. If you sow to the flesh, you plant to the flesh, you seek the flesh, you follow the flesh, you're going to reap death, destruction, spiritual death, spiritual destruction. But if you sow rather to the spirit and really contribute to that and, and give your attention to that, you sow life. That idea of sowing and reaping is what that passage uh, talking about to, to delight yourself in the Lord is to sow to that, contribute to that, pursue that, pursue Him. And He promises to give you the desires of your heart. 
And that's that's really what I've been trying to do because the desires of my heart don't always honor the Lord. They honor me, or they they they, uh, and I have to choose. Am I putting me first, or am I putting him first? And uh, it's not always free. So just just recognize that the, the two are in opposition: the flesh and the spirit. And He's told us to, to take the, the spirit seriously, allow the spirit to have control. John twenty. Um, says this, it seems like an unrelated verse, but it, it, it really isn't. It's a passage that talks about when Jesus confronted the disciples there in the upper room and he breathed on them and told them to receive the Holy Spirit. That passage is, is I think, is very significant. In that context, John 20, verse 21, Jesus talking to his disciples said, peace be with you. That word peace could also be translated uh, freedom, or even cooperation, uh, peace or cooperation be with you as the Father has sent me or dispatched me, I also send you. So here's Jesus commissioning his disciples and telling them I'm, I'm commissioning you, I'm dispatching you as the Father has dispatched me, I'm dispatching you. Um, I also send you, or I dispatch you. So then it says, I be breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm often, because of the terminology, we think of breathing like we would breathe, but the, the word breath is the word for wind also, it's the Spirit, it, it relates to that. I think it's a way, there are two places in the Bible where it speaks of God breathing. One is in the book of Genesis where he breathed on man and became a living soul. That, that, that the, that the, the Spirit of God coming upon them and breathing on them, the man became not just a being, not just an animal like the other animals, but a, a person, a being with a soul, able to communicate, having the life related to God. And here, where Jesus breathes on them and gives them, tells them to receive the Holy Spirit, that is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to be able to function in the church ministry under the direction of and under the blessing of and under the influence of the Spirit of God. And in that context, uh, when he says breathe on them, he says then receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they, they have been retained. And I think that's just one of many places where he talks about that if you have the Spirit of God and you know the Word of God, you can you can make people, you can make declarations by the Spirit as the Spirit brings those things to your mind to help other people. We have that, that ability. We have the Word. I remember Jay Adams talked about that. If you want to be able to tell somebody what God thinks, you need to be able to read and know the word. If you want to be able to say, Thus says the Lord, you got to know what he said. Good. If you do that, you have the you have power to be able to help people change and become more like Christ. And so I think the, the, the passage here is just saying telling the disciples and the church to be energized with and have the spirit of God functioning in their lives to be. To be walking in the spirit and not in the flesh, to be in touch with the spirit and not just living for yourself. Romans is another passage. Uh, Romans eight that talks about um, the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death. And we're gonna we're gonna not finish today. Romans eight. Um, Paul writes for those who are according uh, to the flesh that phrase according appears a number of times in the text 
but it just simply means those who are after the flesh or or those who are dominated by the flesh and it carries the idea of being habitually dominated so that for those who are habitually dominated by the flesh by the sinful nature they set their minds uh, on the things of the flesh they they seek after and they strive after the things of the flesh and I read that verse again because it's an important verse those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who are according to the spirit the things of the spirit okay you get that picture those who have the, the their their fleshly desires their passions they they have the, they follow after the passions of the flesh they set their minds on the things of the flesh they they seek after the things of the flesh uh and those are the things that dominate them but those contrary to that those who uh, same word according to the spirit those who habitually are dominated by the spirit they set their minds on the things of the spirit so uh here is a here is a picture what you begin to pursue kind of dominates your life and dominates your thinking and dominates your passion and so you want to pursue the things that matter you want to follow the things that are true you want to follow the things that relate to growth spiritual growth to to put them the disciplines of the Christian life over the book I read some time ago, the disciplines of the Christian life, a real good book. And it's just important to put the right things into your life, to focus on what you put in your life and, and what dominates your life. You understand that? It's just really, really important. It makes a difference. And that's where you learn to delight in the Lord is because you put the things that the Lord delights in in your life and begin to turn your life around and begin to focus on the things that really matter. And so, uh, that's, that's one of the things there in that, that verse in Romans. And, uh, he goes on to say, the, for the, explaining that, for the mindset on the flesh is death. That is, if you, if you pursue the things, if the things of the flesh are what brings you pleasure, brings you, uh, if, if you pursue in your life, it produces spiritual death. That's the same thing in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, which talks about sowing through the things of the flesh. Um, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. That's a good thing. Peace having to do uh, with the animosity and the hostility between you and the, and the, and the Lord removed and you're having that relationship, uh, energized in that relationship. You, one of the things that is really important is the, the lack of peace, which is, comes from your conscience. If your conscience violates, if you violate your conscience and you're living in a way that you shouldn't, doing things you shouldn't and you know that in the scripture the script, holy spirit brings up the mind that violates your your conscience and you can't have peace you can't be that comfort and so he says the mindset of the spirit is life and peace the mind that is dominated by this holy spirit and submissive to the holy spirit uh, gives you life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward god the mind that follows the flesh is hostile toward god mind that is living for the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not uh, it, it does not subject itself to the to the law of God can even do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So here is a this this battle between the spirit and the flesh. It's real. You know it, and I know it too. We've experienced it. And uh, the Lord just continues to deal with me about that because I need to listen to you. It's very important. We have to take it seriously. Um, verses, I got a lot more verses here. Uh, Romans, uh, we'll 
further down in Romans in verse 6, 11, verse 11, says, even consider yourselves dead to sin and alive unto God. Um, this is interesting. It's almost, and I look at that verse, it's almost like he's saying, um, deceive yourself, but he's not saying that. He's saying recognize what's taking place, even though you may not always experience it the way you want to experience it. Recognize what's going on. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive unto God, because if you're his, notice that the power of the Spirit of God is there, it's available, it's working, and the Word is working. Do not let sin um, reign in your mortal bodies, which says this, we have the strength within us to say no. He says, don't let it. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you will obey its lust. Uh, again, look at that word obey. Here is the, the, the flesh and it's making craves to us, things that, that we know we shouldn't do. And it's asking for us to do it anyway. The Bible says the one that you obey, you're a slave to. And so if we are obeying the flesh, we are a slave to flesh. And it, it's dominating us. And so it says that be careful. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body, obeying its, its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself. There's the contrast. Instead of being presented to sin to members of sinfulness and self-centeredness and self-indulgence, present yourselves to God. I try it. I don't do a very good job of it, but I try when I am tempted, like with lust, that's a good one. When you're looking to some tractor won't walk by and they do it loads all the time. Um, I try to focus my attention on the Lord and say, Lord, I want to focus on you. I want to love you. I want to put you first, not this, that, whatever. You see what I'm saying? I want to, I want to, as much as I can possibly do it, focus on surrendering, surrendering my affections to the Lord rather than to something else. And it's really, really a battle between me and my desires for what it is. And so he goes on to say, <clears throat> presenting the members of your body as sins of sin, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead. And that's the thing. We are, if we're in Christ, we have died to self, and we are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness. And uh, that's a good thing. Um, he goes on to say, but I'm not going to go into it. We'll pick this up. We're not getting very far right now, but we will pick this up a little bit. But if this is this is important. It, it may be a kind of a rabbit trail a little bit, but the whole passage is talking about dying. Uh, dying church that is dead is dead because it's turned its back on God. It's living for self and it's pursuing its own own way, its own indulgence, and uh, <clears throat> we don't realize it. We don't realize it sometimes because sin deceives. It, 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 it bears the fruit, if you will, of death. That's the, what Galatians is all about. Saying that, um, so does the flesh, so does the spirit, life, and so does the flesh, who is death and the deceit. Any thoughts, whatever, before I hang up?